Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with my first international guest, Dr. Carrie Coleus. Dr. Coleus is a Canadian orthopedic surgeon who has trained and worked in both Canada as well as Australia. In addition to her clinical responsibilities as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Coleus has expanded the realm of her expertise to include advocacy, global health, and diversity outreach. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Coleus, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Carrie Coleus. I want to share with you a company called Just Cause Scrubs that was created by an orthopedic oncologist by the name of Dr. Scott Porter. Just Cause Scrubs is an amazing scrub and medical-related apparel company with a humanitarian focus. Just Cause Scrubs donates 50% of all of their profits to the charity of the customer's choice. What is also amazing about this company is that they are offering 10% off to the listeners of the She Can Fix It podcast. Visit www.justcausescrubs.com slash shecanfixit to get 10% off your order. Again, the website is www.justcausescrubs.com slash shecanfixit to get 10% off your order and support a just cause. Dr. Carrie Coleus, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. You are, I think it's 16 hours apart that we're, we are right now. That's so correct. thank yes, you so correct. much for spending the time with me. I was funny is every time I like sent you an email, I literally didn't know whether to say like good morning or good afternoon. Cause I was just like, I don't even know like what to say right now, but amazing. Um, I know that you have traveled the world um, in your life. So I was hoping you can just kind of describe your background and where you started and where you went. So I'm Canadian. Um, I grew up in Eastern Canada in a province called New Brunswick. So right above Maine and uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, my dad was a financial officer in a, in a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And my mom uh, went into farming basically. And um uh, from that, I ended up going out to the University of Alberta in Western Canada, did an undergraduate in science with a, actually a minor in Middle Eastern and African studies. Oh, nice. Uh, that was really as close as I could get at that time to an international development minor and was was uh, going was, was planning on sort of going public health route potentially, but uh, realized that probably was not for me right. and ended up going... Um, went to medical school at University of Calgary, uh, also in Alberta, stayed there for orthopedic training, and then went to Australia here in Melbourne for um, fellowships in peds orthopedics and also adult, um, young, you know, pediatric and adult limb reconstruction. And then um, ended up taking a job back in Southern Alberta in 2012, and then moved back to Australia um, late at the end of 2018. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've been around a little bit. You've been, yes, definitely. I, when was the first time you knew you wanted to do orthopedic surgery? 
So I actually had, I went into medical school ex, just expecting I was going to be a GP. Uh, I mm -hmm. hadn't been exposed to really any specialists and thought, well, I want a broad range of skills. I want to be portable. I want to, you know, be able to do what I want and travel where I want. And I figured that um, being a family physician was sort of the way for me. And I ended up doing a medical elective in Angola, which is mm -hmm. in Southern Africa. And that was in... Um, just at the end of my first year of medical school. And I went to work with a Canadian general surgeon who had stayed through basically most of, I think the entire civil war. So they had, they had just come out, I think, you know, under two years before that had just come out of a 25 year long civil war oh, wow. and uh, saw some of the stuff that he was doing and thought, Hmm, maybe I should really reconsider the, you know, the family physician route mm -hmm. and really look into surgery, see if it was for me. Right. So came back to Canada, um, uh, hung out with a bunch of general surgeons, found that it really didn't fit me. I mm -hmm. really, they didn't seem that happy uh, or excited about <laughs> what they did um, and thought, okay, I'm going to try orthopedics and ended up sort of falling in love with it. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I should point out, I mean, this, a lot of people uh, actually don't know this story, but I pretty much had the worst uh, entry into orthopedics or first exposure to orthopedics you could possibly imagine. Oh no. And that story, uh, so in the second month of medical school, we had to go and do these clinical core sessions. So you would go, like five of you would go with a doctor, like an attendant, right, right. you go to their office or hospital and see what they did. And, and, and so it was the MSK unit and um, I had no interest in orthopedics, but we went to this surgeon's office and he had done this knee replacement on this patient and it was, you know, it was the question, the patient was having ongoing pain. And so he was trying to rule out infection. So he's like, Hey, I need to aspirate your knee. So, you know, preps the knee, we're all in this little room. And, um, the next thing I knew I had passed out and not oh, only no. had I passed out, I had actually pissed my pants. Oh no. Yeah, yeah literally. So, so my, my little small group had this, you know, meeting, I actually ended up having, it's a long story, but I had clothes with me because I was going to visit my sister that night and I got changed and went back in and kept seeing, seeing oh the patient. My um, my, my group, um, ha had this meeting and said, okay, we're going to keep this totally confidential. This is really embarrassing. And I just went to school Monday and just told everybody, cause it was really funny and it was going to come out anyway. So it might as well come out on my terms. So my, my hockey jersey, which everyone in, at University of Calgary, you get a, med, you get a um, uh, hockey jersey and your classmates name you, nickname you. It's like a fundraiser charity. Right. So I got syncope with an extra E that oh, I wore no for, way. For, for three years. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was my kind of like first exposure to orthopedics. So I always tell people, listen, if things don't, aren't the greatest, like your first time you're, you, you see something orthopedic, you know, it can, <laughs> could be a lot worse <laughs> oh my god uh, and the, the 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 guy that surgeon that that uh, that happened with he he still says that that was his most memorable teaching experience <laughs> you know of his career oh my so, god that yeah. is amazing I literally first of all how Canadian is it that you guys get hockey jerseys I have yeah. to put that out there oh my god um I think you are my first international guest. And so I would love to hear kind of the status of gender diversity 
uh, within orthopedic surgery in both Canada and Australia. And just for review for our listeners right now for residents, I think we're at like 15% women for uh, faculty or attending uh, membership into the academy. We're at um, 6%. And there's still barriers that we're still trying to overcome. And so I was wondering if you can just kind of describe what life is like as a female surgeon in Canada and Australia. Are you guys doing better than us, hopefully, or is it kind of the same boat or even worse? So there is a difference between the two countries. I'll probably, um, I'll talk about Canada first. Um, So Canada is actually doing quite well in this regard. We got... um, I think almost 12% now uh, attending surgeons are female. And in the orthopedic uh, resident population is 25% female. Wow. So although definitely I was a minority when I went through training, it wasn't like there, it wasn't, everyone always knew there was a, they, they, you know, you you were exposed to other females. Definitely. Right. Um, In Australia, that's a bit different. So I'm like very much, a minority here it's mm-hmm. less than five percent of attending surgeons are female in orthopedics wow. they do have um a, a definite increase though it's i think in, i just saw the numbers for 2021 of the ones starting the new trainees i think 24 percent of them are female wow so they are taking really a, a sort of measures here to try to increase the diversity and that's mm-hmm. to their to their credit i would say in canada it's happened a little bit more naturally and not necessarily like with strong um pushes in in that regard uh although there's definitely more being formalized now to improve the diversity i mean and that's just that's just talking about women that's not even talking about underrepresented minorities like as you know in the u.s it's even way less than that less than 6.1 percent so i don't know those numbers like we have um uh, we have no indigenous orthopedic surgeons in, uh, we have no indigenous male or female orthopedic surgeons in Australia, but mm. there are, um, I think two or three in the training program. So, mm. you know, there's a lot of positive things happening in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you think, well, why is, why is there a difference between the U S and Canada um, and, and I think a lot of that are, are the greater society as well in terms of parental leave and, and some of those social um, right. social things that maybe make it a little bit easier in Canada. I mean, Estonia actually, and we'll talk about that later, like Estonia is leading the world in terms of female representation in orthopedics. So I, did not I think that. there's, yeah, I think there's like definitely um, some countries to look two that -hmm. are doing this quite well but it is bigger than the specialty itself it also involves the wider society and right there's a lot of layers there yeah Mm -hmm. so are you guaranteed parental leave in Canada both as a trainee as well as an attending or is it not guaranteed um so there is parental leave as a trainee yes Mm -hmm. um uh I in Canada because most surgeons are fee for service okay Mm -hmm you don't have like your, your maternity leave is essentially self-funded. So uh, you still have like, for instance, I had, I had two kids as a consult, as an attending in in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so I still had my office overhead that I had to pay. Um, I took, you know, four months with each child. Mm -hmm. And then my husband was stay at home dad for till they were both, you know, 12 months of age. Right. 
So there is a, you know, a financial cost to that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think, um, you know, it's in, a, in the public system in Australia, for instance, there's definitely um, better, you know, you don't take as much of a financial hit, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's not perfect. I mean, um, right. obviously, the, the countries that have the most generous parental leave um, packages and programs and, and, and leave, they generally, you know, do better. So <laughs> right, right. What do you think the United States could learn from the efforts that have been done in Canada and are currently being done in Australia? Yeah, I, I, that's a hard one. I mean, I, I'm not American, so I, I really, I, I don't want to be, you know, you guys should do this and you guys should do that. I mean, <laughs> you guys work in that system and has its own intrinsic challenges, but mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, in terms of what people can do in general, like, I mean, I'm not going to start nitpicking like elements of political, uh, <laughs> political things in the U S but right. I think, I think really looking for those underrepresented minorities, like looking for them and, and seeing them. And even at a very young, you know, early, early phase and think, you know, how could that person be an orthopedic? Maybe they want to, maybe that, maybe that person, that underrepresented minority, maybe that person has some life experience and some, you know, outlook on life that, that, you know, that they could offer and help us in our profession and provide mm -hmm. creative solutions to some of the problems that we face. Right. I mean, a lot of problems in orthopedics, like even, you know, you look at the, you know, the competition, even the competitions um, element alone, anything is that, you know, we're all competitive. I get it, but it's almost, it's to an unhealthy extent. And so right. when we have, you know, a singular type of person, you know, alpha type male Caucasian, you know, like it doesn't, right. that, that lack of diversity, I think is really harming us. I mean, mm -hmm. just last week I heard of another, you know, American orthopedic surgeon um, who committed suicide and, and, right. you know, this is just tragic stuff. We are not, we have some, tr some problems and we need some help. And I think, you know, those things, those, those systems and structures that are good for women, and are mm -hmm. good for minorities are also good for men. What is good for women is good for everyone. And so I have like, I mean, even my male trainees here, I mean, they want to be able to take parental leave. They want to see their kids. They don't, they don't want that old style where you just didn't see your kids and your mm -hmm. spouse raised them. And, and that, that is, is really um, not particularly great for families and it's mm. not great for our personal lives. And, and we know that our personal life impacts our professional life. True. You know, there's not, a, there's not a, a clear divide there. So, <laughs> right. Um, you know, other things like, I think the flexible training options is really important. Um, I, I would say that certainly we have flexible training options available here. They're not always widely um, taken in orthopedics, but it is, um, it, it is, it is the, the rule, like you're, you're allowed to, and they have to make a way to, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so that would be like, you know, your, your three days a week or your four days a week, instead of, you know, five days a week. And obviously that would take you longer to get through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think some things like practice sharing. So mm -hmm. that is a concept that I was involved with in, in, in the Canadian setting, um, and before I moved back to here to Australia. And so it was uh, three surgeons, 
basically, so one male surgeon, one, uh, sorry, one male surgeon, and two female surgeons that I was a part of, we would um, use two people's full-time operative time and so you'd have a bit of a rotation. So literally mm -hmm. like I would take, you know, I'd have two or three weeks off and then my colleague would fully cover. And then when I came back, he would go away and there was an understanding in our practice. The patients knew that you, you know, you would, you would always get your, your original surgeon for your elective procedure, but the mm -hmm. follow-ups may very well be done by a colleague. And they all knew that heading into, and I think it really I think it benefited patients in many ways. It's like a second set of eyes, like mm -hmm. almost like not a second opinion, but a second set of eyes, I think. And so, you know, um, that really, I think what is very helpful for quality mm -hmm. of life, mm -hmm. avoiding burnout. And, you know, I've other, other surgeons in Canada are doing that as well, whether they're, you know, an early practice person combined with a late practice, like, you know, almost retirement age and, and uh, it's been really uh, advantageous, I think. So I, li I right. like to see more of that happen. I don't see that really in Australia at this mm -hmm. point. And I think it sounds like, I, I think that would be quite tough in the US, but I think we have right. to start thinking about these, these things. Right, yeah, that's awesome. I, I haven't even heard of that before. And so I think it'd be really interesting to see if that could be even done in the States. And um, speaking of kind of the things that need to be done and how those things can actually happen, I. In researching you, I did uh, go on your Twitter account and I loved one of your pinned tweets, which was about advocacy. Um, and you state that in medicine, the status quo is programmed into us from the beginning. Abide by the hierarchy, keep your head down. That culture doesn't lead to a system of transformation. Fear is a great driver for physicians. Fear of what others will think, fear of exposing our imperfections, fear of making ourselves a target, fear or losing prestige or privilege, fear of lost income. Listening to courage, not fear, is how we change the system in medicine. And so first of all, thank you so much for writing this. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think that it's so true. And I was curious as to when in your career did you cultivate um, this courage to advocate for yourself and others? So I would say that from an advocacy standpoint, although ad health advocate was a competency of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. So in my training program in Canada, you were assessed on your health advocacy abilities or role or efforts, but it was only to the point where, you know, you're advocating for the patient, obviously, but I didn't really see it modeled where, I mean, I saw people advocating but not to the point where it might cost them something personally, mm -hmm. right? And so when we're talking about system change, I mean, these are, I'm talking real system change. Um, I mean, things can get a bit unpleasant and it may come at a bit of a price. And so in terms of from an advocacy standpoint, that was really probably modeled more by my mom. So my mom as a, I mean, she was a farmer, but she was uh, very passionate about agriculture, sustainable growing practices. This is like 35 years ago. And she um, really showed me how to lead and navigate in a, in an industry where she was a minority, which is this very similar, you know, ironically right, right. being a female in orthopedics. And so I saw my mom, how my mom navigated that and re really spoke up and um, modeled that. And so I think I just, it, be, it was normal to me mm -hmm. in, in many ways. Um, and a lot of, you know, what I do now in that space, I think is, is related to my upbringing, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, I, this, 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 you know, we're selected into medicine because we've, you know, checked these boxes, right? Mm. We've done this and we've done that. And, you know, and then you succeed in medicine when you get the work done, you don't complain. And I'm not saying, I mean, I was right there. Like I was the hardest working, like, right. And, and it is me in, in many ways, but there comes a point when you need to flip the switch, right? You're like, Hey, I'm a attending now, you know, I'm seeing these system issues. This isn't right. But the, it, I think a lot of us are really, because we've just been programmed that way for years to think like, okay, keep your head down and, mm-hmm. you know, going and then we can't flip the switch and so there people are really I think held back you know as I in that you know as you quoted there like in in terms of their fear and a lot of it is mental right Mm -hmm. um you know for me I think a real turning point as far as like public advocacy uh was occurred for me in 2016 so when I was working in southern Alberta um this is there was a child that died of meningitis, bacterial meningitis, and whose parents didn't take the child to see anyone medical. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was, they, they were doing natural methods and, and the, before they were, they, they were um, charged with failure to provide the necessaries of life. And um, there was the, these, these parents became quite um, very vocal and, I uh, said there was like, you know, a conspiracy against them and with the media mm-hmm. and, you know, met with a producers of a, anti, a very, quite famous anti-vaccination film mm. and basically called in, called in supporters, you know, the day of the verdict and we're trying to make this into a forum for the anti-vaccination movement where, you know, you're, and, and it was like, it was a step beyond for me. And I, right. I was like, this is this happened, you know, this happened in my area of the province. I'm like, I'm not going to stand for this. And so I had, interestingly enough, because I had the the day off work the next day, couldn't recruit anyone to come with me because everybody else is working. But I literally like, I mean, you're going to think this is crazy, but I I made my like placards, you know, like, so I said, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to stand out in front of the courthouse because of all these, you know, protesters, like anti-vaccination people are coming that I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the solo protester if I have to be right. Right. So basically took my kids, showed up expecting like all these people, you know, and interestingly enough, all those people didn't come, but what came was like, you know, 10 news cameras, because this was national and international news, this case. And I'm standing there with my two kids with my thing. And I'm just like, you know, like shaking, literally, like it was just like, you know, terrified, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, I spoke on media, and I said, this is why I'm here. I'm here to say this isn't okay, then this shouldn't be turned into an anti-vaccination forum. A young child died. And, you know, this, this thing went like national, like it was like, I I was on like uh, the news all over the news and it was like solo doctor protester, you know, (laughs) and and you think like, that is kind of crazy. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But after that happened, nothing really seemed that scary to me anymore. Hmm. In, even in my professional life, um, and, and I'm not going to say I felt untouchable because I mean, anyone, I mean, but it, it, it just like, I feel like it busted off a lot of those years of programming that I had in medicine. And, and, right, um, right. and I think um, I really, you know, took off in a real public advocacy way for me, whether that's, 
you know, it, whether it's vaccination or it's racism in medicine or diversity or, you know, trampoline use or COVID, I mean, all these things. So, so I tend to be quite public um, and, and, you know, that does come at a cost, a personal cost at times, but I've, I guess I counted that cost and I've, you know, I've been able to navigate that. Now, not everyone is going to be in that situation. And so I think it's really, you know, looking for ways that you can kind of grow your courage because courage isn't like, okay, one day you wake up and you're like, I'm really brave. It's like, it's like small steps. It's like courage is a muscle. I always tell you it's a muscle. So you take step by step by step. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And what would you, what would your advice be to those who, you know, the trainees, the resident physicians who don't believe that they are in a position to advocate? You know, I think that um, speaking as a resident physician myself, it, you know, there are times in which there's this big giant monster and you're like, I, you know, and all these systemic issues, like, as you mentioned that how um, ortho itself is so competitive and it's almost as though people are just trying to fight each other out rather than just bringing as much smart, intellectual, amazing people into this amazing field. And so what would your advice be to those who see issues, but just don't know how to advocate? Yeah, I, I think number one, I would say is know your personal values and strengths. And mm -hmm. so, you know, like as a trainee, I had no idea what my personal values were. I mean, I, I said, well, what do you value? I'm like, oh, I value, I don't know, family or I didn't really know. Like, so there's, right. there's multiple different tests that you can take now, you know, justice, you know, like fairness, like there's, I mean, for me, justice is like my highest value. And so once you know that it allows you to be kind of more intentional and realize where you fit in the, in the, in the parcel, because mm -hmm. not everyone has the same values. So you're not going to be really necessarily that as effective advocating for something that's not really in line or opposed, I would say opposed, advocating for something that's in line with your values or directly opposed to your values. Like, but you want to look to see how you can do complement each other. Like you mm -hmm. can have, you know, your friend that really values this. And so you guys team up and, you know, you do something together. I think, as a trainee, one thing would be is make sure if you're going to pick your battles, you really need to not just always be fighting for yourself. So uh, if you're always just fighting for yourself and like waving your flag and, you know, it's all about me, you're only going to get so far. But if you're really, if, you, if you're known for your interest being really other people and the system and what's right for the system rather than your own rights, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to get a lot farther. You're going to be able to recruit allies easier, mm -hmm. you know, um, you want to be a consistent advocate showing true good character across the, you know, if you're wishy-washy in one way, one day, and then the next day you're flipping, no one's going to, you're just going to lose all credibility in that right. area. Um, I think sometimes you do have to step out and, you know, be the solo doctor, the solo protester. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really scary. Like, I mean, you like I for instance that that episode with uh, Dr. Claudia Thomas, Claudia Thomas, like right. you know she walked out that you when you interviewed her, she, you know she walked out of that operating room when that neurosurgeon was verbally mm -hmm. abusing that nurse. Like she was like I'm I'm going to be the solo doll, you know, like so yeah, and and so there's there can be a cost to that though, so you have to navigate that a bit carefully. Right. Um, but there there will be haters. There definitely will be haters when you say things that are that are true, that are unpleasant, there, the people will not like that. Um, I think continually 
reevaluating your motivations as well. Like, because sometimes it's, it, it, you can kind of get your own, you know, offense, like it, it can become more about your own personal offense rather than the greater good. And so you have to kind of watch that and really be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think something that I tried to adopt that's stood well by me is to um, give people the benefit of the doubt until they prove, until they, until they prove you otherwise, until they give you a reason not to. Um, other sort of tips would be like refining your writing skills in terms of, you know, how you communicate problems or how you communicate the situations and how you communicate solutions. Um, and really the, 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 the last thing I would say is, you know, the competency thing. Okay. So medicine is like, I'm going to say, I don't know if it's the only area, but it's the area where if you are not clinically competent, you will be, you know, that will limit all of your leadership and advocacy aspirations if you are not known to be a competent surgeon. And Mm -hmm. so I think building your competency along with these other things is super important. Um, And also I think an element of kindness as well, right? Mm -hmm. If you're just a mean person, like always mean, you're only going to get so far. And so I think growing in kindness as well is really important. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, I would love to talk about the International Orthopedic Diversity Alliance, and you are a founding member of this organization, which literally has an all-star membership from over 20 countries. And so I was hoping you can describe what is this organization and why it was founded. So uh, the International Orthopedic Diversity Alliance is really the brainchild of Dr. Jennifer Green, who is an orthopedic surgeon from Australia. And she started this last year. Um, There was a number of us that sort of, you know, had teamed up and really was quite informal in the beginning. And we basically teamed up for this publication um, to, you know, collect data in terms of female representation in orthopedics in every country we could kind of get. Right. And um, in both women and under upper, uh, underrepresented minorities. And so this this is this is growing. It's just a, like I said, it's a new organization just started in 2019. And um, uh, the strategy is basically to share best practices for increasing diversity through like research, publication, and education, but on a global scale so not just you know the g7 countries but really a bigger on a bigger scale um so you know it's an it it really really is a true global alliance i mean we have uh it's not just commonwealth it's like beyond the g20 even and so and i mentioned estonia right i mean Mm -hmm. estonia internationally is like the gold i guess the gold star for female representation so what are you know what are they doing and what can we learn from them i mean canada is also is is up there but uh i think sharing of information is really key and so you know congrats to dr green for really visioning that um i mean she is the backbone behind that and it's becoming more formal in its governance structure and goals and things now um we've had i think a couple publications so far a third one coming out so uh it's exciting stuff yeah Nice. What do you hope the International Orthopedic Diversity Alliance achieves in the next, I know it was just founded in 2019, but what do you hope that this organization will achieve in the next five to 10 years? I think just the sharing of best practices, really. Um, 
you know, we, we, it's really unlimited potential at this point. And so we'll see where, where it goes. I mean, uh, I'd like to see more than just, I mean, we, it's not just women, like it, we're, it's, it's underrepresented minorities, but I like to see, um, you know, it to be a bigger organization, be more formalized, have more educational um, pursuits and, um, just really be an advocacy organization as well but but that that's up to the membership to decide how they want to go I mean that's that, that's what I but it's yeah it's not it's up to the membership so nice awesome and I do want to touch on your children's book which I love in researching you I had no idea about this but in addition to your clinical responsibilities and leadership roles um you wrote an award-winning children's book entitled Maria's Marvelous Bones which was the winner of the International 2019 Purple Dragonfly Book Awards. And so what was your inspiration for writing this children's book? So I actually had wanted to write a book, a narrative book, a story about fractures and how they, they heal ever since I was a trainee. So I'm talking like, you know, 2008 or nine. And uh, I finally decided like 2000, I think it was 18. I'm like, I'm going to do this, right? And really it's, it's, um, it's a narrative. So a little girl falls and breaks her arm and, you know, goes to the hospital, gets a conscious sedation, closed reduction, you know, it's a radius and ulna, you know, mid shaft fracture gets a cast and then it goes through like, <laughs> you know, trip back to the hospital to get x-rays and follow up where there's like a, you know, black female orthopedic surgeon and oh, nice. uh, cast remover process, you know, with the cast saw and all these things. And, and so originally when I had planned the book and, and, you know, had written it, uh, it was all kind of focused on medically accurate uh, information, you know, decrease anxiety. And then as, you know, we all started really thinking, okay, how can we increase diversity in the profession? I thought, oh, why don't I build a little bit of diversity in this kid's book? Because the whole pipeline issue, you know, I think you're well aware about the pipeline and trying to increase yes. the, the pipeline and orthopedic diversity in the pipeline. Um, you know, so I had like a stay-at-home dad character, there was a male nurse, and then this black female orthopedic surgeon. And um, so really we kind of was able to combine that whole diversity concept mm -hmm. with the book, but not in a really, uh, hopefully it has, people said it's, it's quite natural. It doesn't come across as forced. Um, and so right. it's been really fun. Like it's been a really fun. I feel like in so much in medicine, you, your creativity, we get, you know, accepted into medical school based on all these amazing things that we do. And then slowly like creativity gets beaten out of us over like about a decade. And then, you know, I think it finally took me about five or five years, seven years to sort of get my creativity back after finishing training, but uh, I got it back. So oh, that's awesome. Amazing. And I know that we've talked a lot about what you've done and the different organizations that you're currently a part of, but I would love to learn about what your future goals and projects are. And I know that COVID is making, you know, telling the future or looking into the future rather difficult, but what, what are your goals and aspirations? So I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit of an intangible, like in terms of my goals are a bit more intangible. And I know that's kind of like, that's a bit of a weird answer. I mean, I don't have like, I don't have, I don't, I don't know what my goals are in terms of, uh, you know, where I want to be or what status I want to be at or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just kind of going along for the ride. I, I see, you know, the opportunities in front of me and then take them. I mean, I, that sounds a little bit vague, but I mean, in terms of from an intangibles, you know, point of view, um, you know, 
my interests would involve like surgeon wellness, I think. Um, you know, I've led that, we did a Canadian study of orthopedic trainees and surgeons nationally in 2018, and we're planning to repeat, to do that in Australia. It's been on the back burner a bit because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and I mean, ongoing, like quality improvement access is very important to me, like patient access to care. And so I get involved with a lot of projects like that. I'm sure I'll be seeking those out where I, in the future. Um in terms of other sort of intangibles, I think for me, it's really about, you know, growing in my competency as well as my character. Okay. And, and I think, you know, I've been blessed with a really, um, I've been blessed with a real platform, right. To, to speak and to advocate. And I want to use that in whatever form may be presented to me. And so Mm -hmm. I, I, um, respect that and I want to use it to make the system better and uh what form that will take time will tell awesome very cool Dr. Coleus I so very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with me um 16 hours ahead of me I'm still wrapping my mind around that um and so I would like to transition into our final segment which is the final five which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the she can fix it podcast and so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why so I really like bad juvenile hallux valgus (laughs) (laughs) reconstructions um I like them because you make an immediate change to the shape of the foot and the patient really come back and they're like oh wow that looks so different like so I like I really like I like those surgeries I mean in terms of from an elegant standpoint I think my favorite surgery would probably be a medial open reduction for a dislocated hip like in dysplasia Mm -hmm. um just an elegant like surgery and really important surgery so that's that's probably Sorry, that's two, not one, but <laughs> I support two's great. That's awesome. Um, what are your go-to topics for grand rounds presentations or inviting speaking engagements? Uh, so wellness and burnout, uh, surgical culture, uh, advocacy, and uh, how to be an ally. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? I've had a lot of good memories as an orthopedic surgeon. I mean, this is a, it's a great career. Um, I think one thing that was quite special to me was, uh, so in 2014, um, my team did the first precise lengthening nail in Canada and oh, it nice. was an all female team. It was an all female oh. team. So it was me, my surgical assist, the anesthetist was, was a female, uh, the nurses were all female. I mean, the only the only person in the room that was a male was the patient, you oh know. So um, that was pretty special. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty special, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I, I'm, I get I get many other I get many good days in the operating theater. So oh, that's great. What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Well, I have two children, age six and eight, so they take up most of my time, my, my free time. But I like hiking and anything beach related. Uh, I, I do live in Australia now, so that's a right. bit. Um, biking and reading, probably those are those are my my things when I'm not working. Yes. <laughs> 
Nice. And my final question to you, Dr. Coleus, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? I would say that grow your competency, grow your competency, but don't forget to grow your character as well. Because if your character growth does not match your knowledge and technical growth, your care, your lack of character will be your downfall. Wow. Profound. Dr. Coleus, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix a Podcast. I sincerely like, thank you so much for spending the time with me. And I really wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Carrie Coleus. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.